Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the Lord reads, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the word of the Lord. Ian Duguid once wrote, Properly understood, adoption is one of the most precious, heartwarming, and practical of all of our theological beliefs. It focuses our attention on a relational image and points us to the joy and assurance that comes from receiving a father who loves us and a family with whom we can enjoy our new freedom in Christ. So I welcome you back this morning to our series on Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And if you remember, right before Christmas, we began to work our way through Romans chapter 8. And when we started I had said that we are standing on holy ground because Romans chapter 8 is really the pinnacle of the gospel. In fact, H.B. Charles once said that the Bible, if, it's the gold, if the Bible is a gold ring, then Romans 8 is the centrally mounted diamond in that ring. Because the truth is, Romans chapter 8 for us is the summit of our hope, the divine assurance of our salvation. The truth that for those who come to faith in Christ, their salvation is guaranteed because, because the redemption of our souls is the work of God and not man. And as we, as we pointed out, Romans chapter 8 began with the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with the promise that there is no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in between, in between we see the promise the gift of the Holy Spirit as our guarantee of our salvation, and also the promise that God Himself will work all things out for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. The central truth that Paul drives home in Romans chapter 8 is those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are completely safe in the hands of God. Because God is the author and the sustainer and the finisher of our salvation. The central truth of Romans chapter 8 is the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. And central to that truth is what we find in our text before us this morning. The doctrine of adoption. The fact that God has adopted us into His family and made us His sons. This for me is one of the most glorious and one of the most comforting truths found in the entire Bible. The fact that God in His love and grace and mercy by His own will chose to take those who were once His enemies, those who once hated Him, those who rebelled against Him and denied Him and worshipped all manner of all false gods. God took 
unrighteous sinners who are covered in their sin, and he adopts them into his own family as his beloved children. He makes them his own sons. And the Bible uses the word sons for for a reason. We don't want to get tripped up on the language there, but there's a reason why the Bible used the word sons. Because, Because sons, culturally speaking, was a legal term. It had legal implications. Being adopted as a son then had even greater legal implications. You see, sons had a legal right to the family inheritance. Being a son meant a claim on the family fortune. That was the law. And being adopted as a son meant you had the exact same legal standing to that right of inheritance as a natural born son. And that could not be taken from you. That's the thing. You couldn't be unadopted. And this is the truth that Paul communicates for us in verse 16 and 17. He said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. We who come to faith in Christ have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven as sons of God. This right here is the glorious doctrine of adoption, that God, the God of the universe, who is beyond our limits of our imagination, who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, who is perfect in every possible conceivable way, by his own decree and the counsel of his own will, sent his son, his only son, the unadopted son, into the world in order to live a life of complete obedience and to suffer and die on the cross so that that he could take sinners in the midst of their sin and regenerate them and give them new hearts, justify them by faith in Christ, and make them beloved members of his family. That is the glorious doctrine of adoption. That is the truth that we even sing about. The words of the hymn go this way. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Brothers and sisters, how can our hearts not be moved to worship in light of that truth? God did not just forgive us. He didn't just simply rescue us from our fate. He didn't just simply offer us terms of of a ceasefire and end hostility with us. He did everything we couldn't do so that we could be saved and then brought near to Him in an intimate, personal relationship with Him. And not, not, a, not a relationship like as neighbors, right? Not as, not as a distant relative that you don't really get to see very often. Not as a community member that you pass on the street and you wave, but you really don't know them. He brought us near him as his own sons, as his own children. And the thing that we have to realize, this isn't a distant father-child relationship, right? And we know those kinds of relationships. Many of us do. 
the father that is cold and aloof, the, the, the father who's never there, the father whose words of encouragement are few, the father who seemed to be too busy. It's not that kind of relationship. It's, it's, it's a close, intimate father relationship, a loving relationship. You know, that father who is loving and patient, the father who delights in the smiles and the questions and the curiosity of his, of his children, the father who is attentive and condescends to get on his child's level. Paul describes this kind of a relationship when he writes that, that, that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba conveys a very deep sense of intimacy. Like a child crying out, Papa or Daddy. We were brought by grace, by the grace of God into a close, intimate fellowship through Christ with the Father. He is not our enemy anymore. He is Abba, Father. And we can run to Him. We can turn to Him anytime we need. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, in, in chapter 12, the one that on adoption reads this way, and I think it's very, very telling. It reads, God has granted that all those who were justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That is the glorious truth of adoption. And what we need to understand is that it didn't have to be this way. Notice that Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. The truth is God could have saved us and not made us His children. He's the king. He can do whatever He wants to do. We belong to Him, which means He could have made us slaves, slaves who do His will, slaves who never, ever question His instructions, slaves who obey every command, slaves who, who have no will of their own, slaves who are compelled by fear or whatever other means that God would use to cause us to be obedient. He could have done that. He could have... He could have earned righteousness for us and paid for our sins. And then He could have sent us His Spirit to make us obedient slaves to His will. And the truth is this. If He would have done that, that still would have been grace. I don't know if you realize that or not. Right? In fact, that might even seem controversial to, to the way that we think today. But it's true. If God would have saved us from our sin and His wrath to come, the hell that awaits sinners, if He would have saved us from that and made us slaves who, who live only to serve Him, that would have still been a monumental act of grace 
on God's part. Because that is even more still than we deserve. If you understand the heinousness of, of, of our sin, if you understand the cost that was spent to set us free, if you understand the horror of what awaits those who meet God's justice, then you will see that anything that God does is an act of grace. And Him saving us to be slaves would have been an, an act of grace that was more unimaginable than we can possibly come to terms with. In fact, turn with me to Luke 15. That was loud. In Luke 15, we find the, Jesus telling several parables against the, or about, about the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying in parable form, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And one of those parables is the story of the prodigal son. And, and most of us are very familiar with this story. There's a father who has two sons, and one of the sons hates the father, right? so much so that he wishes that he was dead. In fact, he even demands that the father would give him his inheritance now. He does not want to wait for the father to die. He wants it now. And the father, rather than doing what he ought to have done, which would be kill his son, he instead obliges him out of love and gives the son what he wants, and the son runs off with the money and now goes to live a life of licentiousness. Well, it wasn't very long after that and after the partying that the money began to run out and he found himself, this son, in to be in great desperate need. He was on the verge of death, actually. He, a Jewish boy, was, was making a living feeding pigs and he longed to eat the food that they themselves were eating. And then in verse 17, we read, but when he came to himself, he finally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. The son recognizes First of all, that he needed his father, and second, that his, that his father, if his father were to bring him on as a hired servant, that would be a monumental act of grace on his father's part. Because he understood that he had sinned against his father, and in that culture, the father had every right to put him to death for his rebellion. And he knew that he didn't deserve to be called son. He knew it. He had spent his life spurning his father's love. He had impugned his father's character. He had dishonored and humiliated his father publicly, and he committed treason against his family. And so in his mind, being called a son was wildly out of question. But to be a servant, to be a slave in the household, would have been a wonderful expression of mercy and grace. Well, then how much more would it have been an act of grace if God would have accepted us prodigals back as slaves, that we finally come to our senses and recognize that what we have done and realize that we deserve the wrath of God to come and we repent and come back to Him by faith. 
It still would have been amazing grace if God would have redeemed us and turned us into slaves who spent our eternity doing His will. Even if He never would have then expressed His love for us, even if He would have never drew us close to Him, the fact that He spared us and didn't give us what we, what we deserve and didn't cast us aside is more grace than we possibly could imagine. But that's not what God has done for us. In fact, the story reveals what, what Paul has been communicating all along. In verse 20 it says, And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Words that ought to come from our own lips, by the way. And the father doesn't even let him finish. Said to the servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. God took those who hated him, who reviled him, who ran from him, changed their hearts, gave them a righteous, the righteousness of Christ, washed away their sin, put his spirit inside of them, adopted them as, their own, as his own sons, who now have a legal, irrevocable right to the inheritance of glory. Praise the Lord for that. I mean, if there's any reason to worship the Lord today, this is it. God took those who spurned Him, who blasphemed Him, who, who loved their sin and hated their God, who denied His very existence, who, and He took them, and He changed their hearts and clothed them in the righteous robes of Christ and washed away every spot of sin and put His own Spirit inside of them and adopted them as His own sons and granted them the inheritance of glory. Can I get an amen to that? And notice then how this right comes to us. Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Notice that the adoption comes to us by the Spirit. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but Romans chapter 8 is full of references to the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. I don't know if you realize, but Romans chapter 1 through 7 really focus on the Father and the Son and has very little mention of the Spirit. And rightfully so, right? Because, the, because Paul's letter, he's been explaining in detail what the gospel is and how it works. And Paul begins his explanation with the bad news that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike, that he is, his, his wrath is poured out on the religious and the irreligious alike. And mankind, because, and the reason for that is because mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. Mankind has turned his back in rebellion. And as such, he deserves God's justice. But God in his grace 
sent Jesus into the world to redeem mankind. And that he would live for their righteousness and die for their sins. And that by faith in Christ and what he has done, that they would be justified. Romans chapter 1-4, through Paul explains just that. And then in chapter 5, he explains the blessings of the gospel. That we have peace with the Father. And then he explains how the gospel works because of the union we have with Christ. And then chapter 6, he explains because of that union, we're set free from the bondage of sin and the power of sin. And then in chapter 7, he explains that we're not to fall into the error of legalism because we're free of the law, because we're justified by faith, but also we shouldn't fall into the, the error of antinomianism because we've been transformed and set free so we can walk in holiness before God. And so to that point, it's been about the Father and the Son, but in chapter 8, Paul declares assurance of the gospel, and that assurance comes to us from the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, along with being about the assurance of salvation, is about the work of the Holy Spirit inside of the believer. In fact, let's just briefly just look at this, beginning in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, to which we say, Praise the Lord. For the law of the Spirit, which is the gospel, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, our old nature, but walk according to our spirit, to the spirit, our new nature. Those who come to faith in Christ have been radically changed. And it's not something that we do ourselves. It's something that God has supernaturally done in us. The spirit has changed our hearts. He goes on and says, For those who live according to the flesh or their old nature set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, according to the Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul is telling us the, the Holy Spirit has illuminated and renewed our minds. We don't think the way that we used to think because the Spirit has been transforming our thinking. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Quite simple. Those in their old nature cannot obey God or please Him. But by implication, those who are renewed by the Spirit can. You, Paul says, however, not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, and if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is what we've already said, is the truth of our guarantee, of our redemption, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, has been given to us as the earnest deposit, the guarantee of God's promise to save us. And this is the truth, that when, when you come to faith in Christ, you were radically changed because God Himself, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside of you. This is the radical truth of Christianity that God comes to live inside of you. Paul declares this in 2 Corinthians. Or do you not know that your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. We've been radically transformed to the point that God himself now indwells us. 
And Paul declares this to be an essential truth. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit, the, then Christ doesn't belong to him. But if, you, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul is hammering home the point that an indisputable part of your redemption is the fact the Holy Spirit has transformed you and now lives in you and has illuminated your mind and given you new life. And then Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, you put to death the deeds of the body with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you will live. And then he says, For because all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. They are given the right of sonship. Well, who are the ones that are led by the Spirit? Those who have the Spirit in them. Well, who are the ones who have the Spirit in them? Those who have put in their faith in Christ. It's that simple. And then he says, For because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit as of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit makes us the sons of God. We're given the right to be sons of God by believing in Christ, but the Spirit is what makes it a reality. And then Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now there's a lot more about the Spirit in the rest of chapter 8. In fact, we'll look more at that as we go along. But I think you, you get the point. Chapter 8 helps us to see the assurance of our redemption is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And, and this, brothers and sisters, points us to an even greater truth. And that is our redemption is the work of the triune God. Even more to the point, in order for us who were sinners, in order for us who were unrighteous to be made righteous and to be saved, it took the work of the fullness of the Godhead. It took the work of all three persons of the Trinity. The work of transforming you from sinner, dead in your sins and trespasses, into a saint that is now alive in Christ is a miracle that requires the work of all three persons of the Trinity. This is why understanding who God is is so important. Because the Father could not just simply pronounce you justified. Because if He did, He wouldn't be just. And the Son couldn't just simply die for your sins. And the Spirit couldn't just simply just change your nature without the work of Christ. All of those things have to be done. All three persons of the Trinity must do their part. That's the eternal plan of redemption. God the Father is the righteous judge who decreed and ordained your redemption. It is He who holds you accountable for your sin. And it is He who declares you righteous based on your faith in Christ and His work. And it's Christ the Son who purchased your redemption. 
He agreed to come to the world and do what is required to set us free, which is to live the perfect righteous life we couldn't live and keep the covenant of works by his obedience that Adam failed to keep and to fulfill the law that we have all, every one of us, broken. And he had to take our place on the cross where in his body he suffered the full weight of the wrath of God reserved for us, and he shed his blood to wash away our sin. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who then applies redemption to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes our hardened heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. If you remember what Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God because unless one is born of water, natural birth, and of spirit, rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirits. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates, regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates our minds and renew our minds so we can see the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes up residence in us when we put our faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us into truth and righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and conforms us and transforms us and sanctifies us. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee of our redemption. And it's the Holy Spirit that adopts us into the family of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who grants us the ability to cry out, Abba, Father. And it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness in us helping us to see that we are truly the sons or the children of God. And the thing that you and I need to understand is it takes the fullness of the triune nature to bring you to life, to redeem you and adopt you. And because of that, because it required a miraculous act of God, your redemption and adoption are assured because no one I mean, no one can undo what God has done. God, by His power, decreed your redemption. Christ secured that redemption by His life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit applied that redemption through regeneration, indwelling, and adoption. This, by the way, is the, the thrust of Jesus' words. When He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has, who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Your redemption is the work of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Your adoption as a child of God is legal proof that, of your redemption and your right as children of God to the inheritance of glory. But if that's not enough to convince you of the security of the believer, then there's one more thing I want you to consider about the implication of adoption. Those who put their faith in Christ are justified by God and are indwelt by the Spirit and are sanctified and are adopted by God. That's what Paul said. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, who received the Spirit of adoption as sons. John in his Gospel says, we've been given the right to become children of God, not by the will of man, but by, the, by God. 
And, and I know this goes without saying, but our adoption is the work of God himself. God decreed the adoption. God pays for the adoption. God applies that adoption. And the reason why this is important is because our assurance is then not grounded in us and what we do. It's grounded in the very character and the nature of God and who he is. I mean, think about this. God, because of who he is, he is eternal, infinite, immense, self-existent. And because of that, he by nature then is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And he's omniscient, which means he knows all things. And brothers and sisters, this is a truth about the nature of God that I don't think we spend enough time thinking about because we don't fully appreciate this or understand this. God knows all things. All things. Which means there's not anything that he doesn't know. I mean, God is not like an uber smart human. We have a tendency to think in, of God in human terms. God is not just really good with probability, right? God isn't simply full of facts and, and, and trivia. God isn't just intelligent and, and able to reason well. God knows everything. Everything that can be known already is known by God without exception, which means that God knows the past. He actively knows the present, and he knows exhaustively the future. There are three football games scheduled for today. One is probably going on right now. And God knows not only just the outcome of every possible detail of the game, but he knows every detail and every issue related to every person who's affected and impacted by these games. As a Baptist faith and message, our, the confession of faith that we use reads, God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. God knows all things, including all possibilities. Have you ever really thought about the magnitude of that? Because He is all-knowing, He knows you. And He knows everything there is to know about you. God knows you better than you know you. He knows you better than your mama knows you. He knows you better than your spouse would ever know you because he's the one who created you. In fact, the wild truth is he is the one who ordained you. Right? You exist in time and space as a person because God has willed for it to be so. You are alive in this moment because God has ordained for it to be so and his, his knowledge of you is exhaustive. He knows it all. He knows every hair of that's on your head, and even those of us who don't have them, right? He knows how much you weigh. Some of you have been hiding that fact for a while. He knows how many atoms of iron are in your blood right this moment. And he knows everything there is to know about what you've done. He knows it all. He knows the good things that you've done, and he knows the things that you're ashamed of. He knows every single nanosecond, every single nanosecond of your past, of all that you've done, and all that you will ever do. He knows what you're going to have for lunch today if I don't go too long. He knows what you will do 
in 15 years, two months, three days, and six minutes from now. He knows it. Right? So you can't fool him. You can't, you know. And he knows your very thoughts. He knows the thoughts that you will that you have thunk, and he knows the thoughts that you're gonna thunk. He knows them before you think them. And he knows the thoughts that you're thinking right now. Which means when you do things, oftentimes that the outside world looks as, as good things, he, he knows the fact that you're doing that sometimes out of spite or out of guilt or just out of a desire to look good in front of people. He knows everything that you're going to say. He knows every word that you've ever uttered. This right here is kind of a scary thought for me. You know that every word that you have ever spoken, whether public or in private, is recorded in heaven? <laughs> every curse every blessing, every profanity, every loving thing that you have ever said, every hateful thing you've ever said, God knows every word you have ever uttered and He knows everything that you're going to say in the future. He knows that you are going to say not some not-so-nice things about someone's mama that cuts you off on the 14 when you go to Lancaster. He knows it's probably going to happen. He knows also the words of comfort that you're going to use to love on somebody in the community when they lose someone they love. God knows it all. God knows everything that you have ever been, everything you are right now, and everything you will ever be, which then demands that we ask the question, how would God adopt you into his family? How would God draw you close to him and allow you to call him Abba? when he knows everything that there is to know about you, and he knows that one day he's going to have to unadopt you. How is that even possible? I mean, think about this. We, when people today, when humans adopt children, they adopt children in great hope that it will work out. And they do their homework. They make a point to take their time to make sure it's a good fit for the family and for the child. And, and when they adopt a child, they're committing to do everything it takes in their power to make it work out. Adoption comes with great cost. Financially, in terms of time, energy, and emotions, it is a huge investment. Now, if a parent had the ability to look into the future and see that adopting a child would end in disaster and that they would end up disowning that child, do you think that they would invest all those resources that it's going to take for it simply not to work out. No. It's ridiculous. Then how much more is it with God that by His sovereign power that He would adopt you only to later unadopt you and kick you out of the family? If God knows all things, why would He do that given the cost of what it took to redeem you? Paul said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus, the Son, came into the world and took on a full human nature and lived as one of us. In his humanity, he experienced hunger. He experienced the torment of cold weather. He experienced exhaustion. He experienced hatred and rejection. He experienced loss of loved ones. He lived a perfect, obedient life to the Father and even to the cross. And he even prayed to the Father before his arrest, if there is any way for me to not have to do this, 
then let it be done differently. But not my will, but your will be done. He experienced the pain of betrayal. He experienced the shame of being stripped naked and beaten. He experienced being left by all his friends. He experienced the cruelty of his human executioners. He experienced blood loss and dehydration and the horror of being hung on a cross. In fact, we get the term excruciating from the cross. Excruciating means out of the cross. He experienced being reviled and mocked, but the worst of all, he experienced in his humanity God the Father turning his face from him. That's why he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember the hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make his wretch, make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned his face away. The price that was paid so that you could be adopted is more than you can ever imagine. The price that was paid to set you free from the slave markets of sin is beyond all reckoning. Why would God pay that price for you in order to justify you by faith and give you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your redemption and then adopt you into his family when he knows full well there's going to come a time that he's going to have to go back on that pronouncement of justify to remove from you his spirit and then unadopt you? It doesn't make any sense, does it? God, being all-knowing, combined with your adoption, demands that you are secure in your redemption. Not to mention, God un, is unchanging. God doesn't change His plans. God doesn't change His will. God doesn't change His mind. And I can go on and on. We can talk about God's sovereignty and how He's in control of everything. We can, that God is all-powerful and that nothing can stand against His will. That God is impassable, meaning that, that we do not have the ability to manipulate God emotionally. Your adoption is definitive proof of your assurance of salvation. And because, you, because of that, you can be confident you are safe in the hands of God who did it all to save you. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Praise the Lord. So what do we do then in light of this? Well, if you're not in Christ, then hear the message of what God has done to set you free. If you're not in Christ, hear the truth that God has done it all, that you just need simply repent and believe the gospel. Take him at his promise. Receive the gift. It is not something you earn or do. You, you receive it by faith. Repent. And you then are no longer his enemy, but one of his children by his mercy. Repent and believe the gospel. But if you are in Christ, then there's two things. First, rest in that assurance of your adoption. Too many Christians in the world right now are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, wondering if somehow they're going to get kicked out of the kingdom tomorrow because of something stupid they did today. You 
did not save yourself by your efforts. You are not going to make God love you because you never sin again. You were saved by holding on to Christ. You stay saved by holding on to Christ. Rest in the security of what God has done for you. And I mean that rest. And if you sin, yes, recognize it as sin, right? Repent of it and then turn to faith in Christ. Again, continue to walk in that. Continue looking to God and saying, Lord, here is more evidence that I need you to change my heart because I can't do it. Right? Yes, of course we do the things that we can do, right? But when we make a mess that we inevitably are going to make, it isn't run from God and hopefully I'll do some good things and then I'll work myself back into church, you know, because I've cleaned my... No. Turn to God. Turn to Christ by faith and hold on to Him. And then secondly, because this is our hope and the hope of the world, this is the message that the rest of the world needs to hear. The rest of the world does not need to hear any more about, about Christians telling people, you need to do this and you need to do that. That's for the Holy Spirit to do. Our job is to tell them about, about Christ and what He has done. Right? Our job is to tell the world about Jesus and what He has done. Yes, we are to call sin, sin. Yes, we are to use the law to point people to to the mirror so they can see their need for Christ. But it's not our job to walk around beating people up all the time. It's our job to tell them about the love and grace of Christ, that He has satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. They were to repent and believe the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit will then begin to work that inside of us, transforming us from the inside out, working in us the obedience to the law that we ought to be people who are passionate to go out into the world seeing the brokenness and the hurt out there, that we would bring the only message that can really heal anyone, and that is the message of Christ on the cross. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.